Edmonton, Alberta, that was Trubka from their CD, Pochatka, and that goes back a long time. The group's not together anymore, but uh, they and uh, their progeny are uh, still on the musical scene in uh, Edmonton area uh, with other groups and continuing on their great tradition of Ukrainian music. And again, that was Trubka with a song from their CD, Pochatka, Beginnings and Music to the lyrics of Ukraine's national bard Taras Shevchenko. Dobry večer, šanovni radio suhači. Ta vitaju vas vsih na radio programu Naš Holos Radio Ukrinskoho Korinja, kotra podijete vam jak svečano što subote o šosti hodeni na bohatomovni radio stanci AM 1320 Pre mikrofoni Pavlina Makwari, djakuju što rišale parabuta zimnoju na stupnu hodenu, me majmo duži si kavi novena na sjednišnjih programi. Hello there and welcome to Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio here on AM 1320 CHMB Vancouver and in international syndication on PCJ Radio International. I'm your host, Paulette Demchuk-McQuarrie, Pukadinska Pavlina, and I'm delighted to have you with me. We've got a great program lined up for you. We have a book review of a book that's uh, been recently released, a long time uh, in the works, by Vancouver author and photographer Sandra Samchuk. And it is um, all about the World War I internment and her unique take on it. As well, we'll have part two of our interview with Yaris Balan on Ukrainian Jewish heritage, and he'll be telling us more about uh, the Jewish-Canadian uh, journalist Rhea Kleiman and uh, her work in the Soviet Union as well as uh, reporting on the rise of Nazi Germany and uh, the ongoing research about that incredible person. So stay tuned for all of that. We've also got our usual proverb of the week, other items of interest and great Ukrainian music. And coming up next, since it is March and March is the month we revere and honor Ukraine's national bard, Taras Shevchenko, and we started out with uh, one of his very famous poems, Dumemoi, My Thoughts, and uh, here is another one, Zapovit, My Testament, and it is performed by Dmitro Bohush. Як умру, то поховайте мене на могилі. Серед степу широко на вкраїні милі. Щоблани широко полі і Дніпро і кручі. Було видно, було чути, як реве ревучі. Щоблани широко полі. І Дніпро, і кручі, було видно, було чути, як реве ревучі. Як понесе з України у синє море, Кров ворожу отойдіє і лани, і гори. Все покину і полину до самого Бога. Молитися, а до того я не знаю Бога. Все покину і полину до самого Бога. Буду молитися, а до того 
to the foresight and generosity of its donors, the Taras Shevchenko Foundation has been investing in the future of the Ukrainian-Canadian community for over 50 years. Since 1963, the Taras Shevchenko Foundation has been funding initiatives that strengthen our Ukrainian-Canadian identity and enhance our Ukrainian-Canadian cultural heritage. These include fine and performing arts and arts groups, museums, cultural centers, education, as well as authors, journalists, and the Ukrainian-Canadian media, including this program. The Foundation strives to become the premier not-for-profit foundation in a Canada which acknowledges the Ukrainian-Canadian community as a fundamental component of Canadian society. Nash Hollis listeners are encouraged to support this vision through continued donations into the future. To apply for grants, make a donation, or for more information, visit ShochenkoFoundation.com. Твій самотній слід Знаєш, ти одна Ти одна Зимна осінь Ще той слід листям Не накрила Бо до тебе навесні Я повернусь, мила Твої руки я візьму Знову в свої руки І не розквітне поміж нас Жовтий квіт розлуки Не ховай Очей блакитний промінь Заспівай мені в останній раз Пісню ту візьму собі на спомин Пісня буде поміж нас Бо твій голос, бо твій голос Щедра повінь Я мов голос, зелен голос Нею повен Жовтий лис спаде і виросне зелений а ти в пісні будеш завжди біля мене. Як зійдуть сніги з гір потоками, Ой, глибокими навесні. Забринить дорога та неспокоєм, Вдалині мені, вдалині. Зимна осінь ще той слід листям не накрила, Бо до тебе навесні я повернусь, мила. Твої руки я візьму знову в свої руки. Не розквітне поміж нас жовтий квіт розлуки. Не ховай очей блакитний промінь. Заспівай мені в останній раз. Пісню ту візьму собі на спомин. Пісня буде поміж нас. Щедра повінь, я мов голос, зелен голос нею повен. Жовтий лист паде й виросте зелений, а ти в пісні будеш завжди біля мене. Не ховай очей блакитний промінь, заспівай мені в 
щедра повінь. Я мов коло серем колосний полен, жовтий лист подий виросте зелений, а ти в пісні будеш завжди біля мене. And a song by popular Ukrainian artist Taras Chubai, and that was a song written and composed and originally performed by a more modern-day bard of Ukraine, Um, very prolific, and uh, was murdered brutally by the KGB in uh, 1979. And has left behind a just a great collection of music, and that is one of them. And the song is called Pisnya Budi Pomijnas. The song will remain among us. And again, that was performed by Taras Chubai and composed by Volodymyr Ivasyuk. Coming up next, uh, another group from Ukraine, and uh, on a little bit of a more upbeat note, here is Otvinta kind of a punk uh, rock crazy group. <laughs> and uh, here they are with a song called Babana Tumba, Baba's or Granny's Outpost. Ba 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 
Welcome to Knishka Corner, book reviews by Myra Junik, Ukrainian stories in English. In this edition of Knishka Corner, we will be discussing Sandra Simchuk's book on the internment of Ukrainians in Canada, The Stories Were Not Told, Canada's First World War Internment Camps. From 1914 to 1920, thousands of individuals who had immigrated to Canada from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Germany, and the Ottoman Empire were unjustly imprisoned as enemy aliens. Many of them were Ukrainian. In The Stories Were Not Told, Canada's First World War Internment Camps, Sandra Semchuk combines her exquisite photography with historical documents, cultural theory, and poignant personal testimony from internees and their descendants. Simchuk helps readers understand the social and emotional effects of these tragic events. In her preface, Simchuk tells readers, we are learning the important work of listening and speaking truthfully across cultures. Today's fears for security in the world stir memories and experiences of racism, paranoia, and distrust of new immigrants. The first chapter, Learning from the Past, examines the historical events, Ukrainian immigration to Canada in the early 1900s, the War Measures Act of August 19, 1914, and the call for the creation of internment camps for enemy aliens. Internment camps became a government-sanctioned method to imprison those falsely accused of being dangerous enemy aliens. These prisoners were held in over 24 different camps all across Canada. The first camps to be open were at Montreal and Kingston. By the end of September 1914, Winnipeg, Halifax, Nanaimo, Brandon, and Lethbridge were also sites of internment. Women and children were held in Vernon and Spirit Lake, which opened in the cold month of January. Chapter 2, Standing Where the Internees Stood, is an eye-opening photographic look at the current state of internment camp locations across Canada. Readers will be shocked to find out that there were 24 such camps in both urban locations such as Toronto, Kingston, Winnipeg, Montreal, and Nanaimo, as well as isolated camps such as Spirit Lake and Banff Castle Mountain. Perhaps the most powerful chapter in this book is Stories from Internees and Descendants, which is dedicated to the personal testimony of internees and their descendants. Mary Bayrak, who was born in the Spirit Lake internment camp, remembers how she felt. I thought it was a terrible thing to be in a camp. We thought it was for doing something wrong. I just never told anybody about it. Many accounts describe the feelings of shame, guilt, injustice, and anger which internees and their families experienced. Most families kept these experiences a secret, which contributed to the lack of knowledge of Canadians about these internment camps. Sandra Simchuk's book is a major step in addressing internment secrets kept by the Ukrainian-Canadian community for generations. Marshal Forchuk, son of Yurko Forchuk, who was interned in Jasper, Alberta, reveals that his father kept his internment a secret for most of his life. Being detained, being jailed, can never be a happy experience, but being detained, losing everything you've got, and not knowing why, except the fact that you know that you did not do anything wrong, my dad didn't do anything wrong. He lost his homestead. He lost everything he had there. While Simchuk's book is not a scholarly examination of internment camps, the inclusion of personal accounts, historical documents, and photographs, both current and historical, 
makes it a groundbreaking work in the history of Canada's first World War internment camps. Her insightful commentary makes connections between Canada's treatment of its Indigenous peoples and later Canada's treatment of Japanese Canadians during World War II to the internment of Ukrainians during World War I. Semchuk tells readers, for democracy and the protection of human rights to have meaning across cultures in Canada, it is important that these stories register, be accepted, and become a part of comprehending the roles that race and immigration have played in the building of the nation. Sandra Simchuk was born in Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan, and now lives in Vancouver, where she taught at Emily Carr University of Art and Design. She is a Ukrainian-Canadian photographer and video artist who worked collaboratively for 15 years with her late husband, James Nicholas, Rock Cree actor and orator. In 1973, she was one of the co-founders of the Photographer's Gallery, an artist-run gallery in Saskatoon. Her work has been exhibited in galleries across the world, such as the Museum of Contemporary Photography in Ottawa, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, Photo Fis in Scotland, and the Museo d'Art Contemporanei in Spain. Sandra won the Governor General's Award in Visual and Media Arts in 2018. The Stories Were Not Told combines Sandra's unique storytelling skills with photographs and historical documents. This book is necessary reading for anyone interested in Ukrainian-Canadian history and the internment during the First World War. The Stories Were Not Told is available at Chapters Indigo and Amazon. Thanks, Myra. Join us again soon for another edition of Kanishka Corner, book reviews by Myra Junik, here on Nasholos Ukrainian Roots Radio. popular and prolific Ron Kahoot and Buria from Toronto with a traditional Ukrainian folk song, Zadunayim, Beyond the Danube River.
Up next, Anatoly Rudenko and the Folklore Ensemble Kiev with a traditional Ukrainian folk song about that ubiquitous girl, Marichka. This is CHMB AM thirteen twenty, Vancouver. And now for a look at Ukraine's rich Jewish heritage, then and now, brought to you by the Ukrainian Jewish Encounter based in Toronto, Ontario. This is Pavlina, producer and host of Nasholos Ukrainian Roots Radio. Ria Kleiman is a journalist who is little known today in the Jewish or Ukrainian communities, or for that matter, by Canadians in general. But in her day, she reached international acclaim for her coverage of the Soviet Union, including the 1932-33 man-made Ukrainian famine known as Holodomor, as well as the rise of Nazi Germany. Yaris Balan is the director of the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies at the University of Alberta, where he is also the coordinator of the Cool Ukrainian Canadian Studies Centre. During his research on Holodomor, Yaris stumbled onto Ria's reports. He was intrigued by her story and has been since researching her life and work, speaking extensively about his findings, and is currently working on her biography. In part one of this interview, Yaris told us about Ria Kleiman's early life and career. We learned about her courageous investigative reporting that exposed the hoax of the Soviet socialist utopia. We ended part one with Ria being expelled from the Soviet Union just as she was meeting with another famous journalist who wrote the truth about Holodomor. In part two, Yaris tells us more about her work in the Soviet Union and later in Nazi Germany, as well as the end of her life and his ongoing research on this truly intrepid Jewish-Canadian journalist. We ended part one of our interview with Yaris recounting how Ria and her friends traveled across the Soviet Union through Ukraine, where Holodomor was happening, and, and were making their way to Georgia. They make it all the way to Georgia, and it's clear they're, they're waiting for her. She figures out right away, obviously the secret police, they were going to kick her out. They gave her 24 hours to leave the country. But the British embassy intervened. They managed to get permission for her to be sent back to Moscow under escort. And she was given two days to pack her belongings and to leave the Soviet Union. While she was packing up, and of course the people in the communal apartment that she was living in were very sad because they were going to lose mm-hmm. you know, access to food and some extra money and everything. Who visits her? Uh, Malcolm Mugridge. Oh. Malcolm Mugridge had just arrived the day before with his wife, or two days before with his wife, Kitty. And they come in and uh, visit with her. And he describes in her diary, you know, how she looks terrible. And she's obviously haggard and had been sick and everything from this grueling journey and stuff like that. Uh, it's a very interesting sort of little short account of, of this. But just how her, her paths crossed with all these interesting people. I forgot to mention that in 1931 when George Bernard Shaw made his famous and infamous trip to the Soviet Union and met with Stalin, who he thought was great. He also thought Hitler was pretty good, too, and Mussolini, he liked dictators. <laughs> he, somehow or other, he found out about her, and she wrote in a 1945 article an account of her time with Shaw in Moscow. She wrote one piece called uh, How Stalin Outwitted Shaw, the short piece, mm-hmm. in this journal American Mercury. Some guy wrote two issues later, to say, this is crap, 
this woman doesn't know what she's talking about. There's this really good book about Shah's time in Moscow, blah, blah, blah. She writes a letter back saying, what are you talking about? I was with Mr. Shah almost every day. He uh, basically attached her to his entourage. He came with some lords and ladies, you know, fellow Fabian socialists and stuff, a journalist. And even though he was 75 years old, he still had an eye for the ladies. And she was an attractive young woman. So she accompanied him to many things. And one of the things she describes is how every day they had arranged to give Shaw two hours of downtime. So he could go to his hotel room, lie down, rest from five till seven. He didn't need the rest. Uh, he wanted to see the city unofficially. So she arranged for a friend at the British embassy to come. And whoever was guarding and, and minding Shaw, and he had the minister of culture in the Soviet Union, Anatoly Lunacharsky, originally from Poltava, the guy who was the head of the uh, Soviet press, who was from Nikolaev, and they would spell each other off. They both spoke very good English, and so one or the other was with there all the time. And so they'd be sitting in the lobby. This British friend would come and take them to the bar, and she would sneak upstairs and then take off out the back door with Shaw and spend two hours showing him the city. And he was so impressed with her that he then introduced him to two fellow Fabian socialists, Sidney and Beatrice Webb. Oh. Uh, Lord and Lady Passfield. And they came a year later. They came in 1932. And uh, Rhea, who I was, when she was on a visit to London, actually met with them. And there's this fascinating account by Beatrice Webb of their conversation with Rhea and how Rhea tried, told them in, in 1932, early in April when she was there, she basically told them the place is going to hell in the handbasket. It's not what you think it is. And they dismissed her. Hmm. Beatrice was very patronizing in her remarks and everything that they tried to disabuse them of their illusions about the Soviet Union. Hmm. So I said, she, she met a who's who of people. When she got kicked out, it was a major news story. Over 100 American newspapers had carried reports in the first few days from September 20th to 25th wow. of her expulsion from the New York Times and L.A. Times to the Lubbock, Texas, this, to the San Diego, that. In Canada... It was front page news, of course, in the Toronto Telegram. They're the ones who, first of all, they published her articles about her trip to the far north. And then in 1933, in May, June, they published a series of articles that she wrote about the trip through the famine lands. This was a major international news story. She was the first Western journalist in 11 years to be expelled from the Soviet Union. Wow. In some ways, it's lucky that they didn't kill her. Yeah. <laughs> they could have done that. But I think that they weighed the options and uh, thought it would be far more damaging. Instead, Izvestia published this half-page attack on her, describing her as a bourgeois provocateur and accusing her of uh, spreading false information. The order for expulsion came right from the top, right from the Politburo. Hmm. And they went after her, you know, to discredit her. And I think to some extent succeeded in North America, among many newspapers and publications run by liberals and left-leaning sort of liberals, they didn't want to hear bad stuff about the Soviet Union. <laughs> right. And so she hung around Toronto for about six months in 1933. And I think she was hoping to get a offer a job, you know, uh, something decent. But, you know, she had been a freelancer. She, she wasn't actually a correspondent. Right. Yeah. So um, she decides in November of 1933 to go back to Europe because that's where the action is, this time to Nazi Germany, where the Nazis are now... Uh, there's the elections that came up in November 8th where they consolidated their power. She heads back. She arrives in Berlin. She gets attached to a bunch of other correspondents who are running around visiting polling stations and working-class districts of Berlin, seeing what's going on, and um, figure that she'll be able to spin off some articles and, and make a few bucks freelancing. But at the same time, she starts currying favor with the uh, Berlin bureau chief for the London Daily Telegraph. He wanted to see what she was made of. So he said, get a story about this guy, Julius Streicher, who's a notorious Nazi anti-Semite. I mean, this guy published a newspaper called Der Sturm that just reeked of anti-Semitism. Well, was, wasn't Rhea Kleiman Jewish, though? Yes, he knew she was Jewish. He... And he sent this Jewish woman to interview this notorious anti-Semite. Wow. She not only got a story, by the end of it, Streicher is saying to her, listen, if you have any problems, just get a hold of me. He was, he was charmed by her. Wow. Well, that was good enough, and the Daily Telegraph did take her on, and she was then their Munich correspondent from 1933, from December of 33 till November of 1938, reporting 
right from the heart of Nazi Germany. And, and she did human interest stories and stuff, but she also cultivated her contacts. Just as in, in when she was in the Soviet Union, she interviewed Lenin's widow. She interviewed Alexandra Kolontai, a famous feminist and Soviet diplomat. Wow. She got driven home after a function at the Kremlin by the prime minister of, of the Soviet Union, Michael Kalinin. Wow. I mean, she, I mean, that's her, your job. While she was in Germany, she got to know Rudolf Hess. And we know this from an article that she wrote in 1941 in the Toronto Telegram that right after Hess flew to Scotland on his quixotic peace mission, and she she writes and she says, look, this guy's for real. He definitely wants peace because he knows the Germans are going to lose the war. This is 1941, right, Hmm. when they were winning. Hmm. He realizes that they're toast. And uh, she says, and I got to know him. And she describes she's being at some rally in 1934 or 35. and he's on stage with Hitler, and he said it was amazing. The two of them were locked eyes, and she must have been standing right there, right nearby. Wow. So she, she was a witness to this, and her, her whole time in, in Munich. Uh, while she was there, Wallace Simpson and Edward got married, hmm. right, after he abdicated and left England, and they got married at a chateau in France. She was the only Canadian woman to report she was at the wedding. In a catalog from years back, their reference to some documents pertaining to her time in, um, in Germany. And one of them was that uh, it looks like uh, she was at some Nazi rally, and when they played uh, the, the national anthem, she refused to give the Hitler salute. Oh. And this and this pissed off the Germans, and they wanted to kick her out and shut down the London Daily Telegraph office. Wow. And the British government, I think, had to intervene and stuff like that. But this, again, this is the type of woman she is. She was not intimidated or fearful of anybody. Uh, she wasn't bullied by anybody. But that being said, three days after Kristallnacht, or the night of broken crystal, when mm-hmm. all these pogroms swept uh, Germany, three days later, she boards a flight to Amsterdam, supposedly, I think, to go on a holiday. I think she was leaving the country. And the plane she's on crashes, approaching Schiphol Airport. Wow. And I've got I've got all the accident reports with all the photographs and everything. How anybody survived this is amazing. Six people were killed, all four crew members and two passengers. Twelve people survived. She was one of the survivors. She was in hospital in Amsterdam for a stretch, after which the Daily Telegraph sent her to Montreal and to Canada to be their Canadian correspondent. And uh, one of the interesting things I found is uh, a letter from... Vincent Massey. Huh. Uh, he was our future governor general, right. right? Wow. And he met with her in London after she she recuperated. And he was obviously so impressed with her. He wrote to Mackenzie King's personal secretary and said, look, this woman is coming to Canada. You got to meet with her. And, and huh. so the uh, King's secretary writes back, yes, I'll do that as soon as the uh, royal tour is over, because he was traveling with the royal couple at that time. So she then becomes the Daily Telegraph Canadian correspondent. She's based in Montreal for a while, then moves to Toronto. She has a bit of a radio show. But in, it ends up in 1942 that she decides she's going to move to the States. Her goal is to work as a Reuters correspondent. She does get some freelance work with Reuters, but she then spends the rest of her life in, in the United States, mostly in New York. And then it just becomes harder and harder for her to support herself writing. She's an older woman now. She isn't connected to some big organization. For a while, she does ad- writes advertising copy for uh, big Madison Avenue advertising firm. That's mm-hmm. little, they had no record of her, so I'm assuming that she was just doing contract work. She died in New York in 1981. She was living in uh, uh, Upper East Side of Manhattan. She mentioned in an article in the Toronto Telegram that she was interviewed in 1961 after a telegram correspondent in Moscow was kicked out by the Soviets. And in the article, she mentions that she had written her memoirs, but nobody was interested. Mm. What happened to those memoirs, we don't know. What happened to her belongings, we're trying to track it down. We're trying to get her death certificate to start. We don't know where she's buried, if she was buried, if she's in a pauper's grave. The family that I've connected with is very interested and is working with us on this. So, I spoke at a um, synagogue to the Toronto Jewish Genealogical Society to thank them for their help in providing me the background information. I, my Part of my goal was to see if I could flush out anything. And sure enough, at the end of my talk, this guy stands up and says, my name is Danny Schiff. I'm here with my mother, Dorothy. My mother met Rhea. Uh, my father was Rhea's nephew, blah, blah, blah. And he had a book that Rhea had given him and had dedicated to him for his bar mitzvah. 
so I, that was my first connection to actual family members. There's some in Los Angeles, and I found another one in Collingwood, and some of, some of them I've been sort of keeping part of the family up to speed on all my research, and they're all excited and wanting to help out anyway, and they said, look, if we can find out if she's buried anywhere, we'll put a monument up, and mm-hmm. whatever. So we're, we're, we're collaborating with them. And this woman, Dorothy Schiff, it was her husband who was uh, Rhea's nephew. She met her on one or two occasions, and I remember her talking about some of these things, but she says, I don't think we really believed her. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. I was at the wedding of this, and I hung out with George Bernard Shaw, and I, you know, knew Herman Hess. I mean, you can imagine that uh, it would seem a little bit far fetched or whatever, but she was a remarkable, remarkable woman. And that not only Ukrainians and Jews don't know about her, Canadians don't know about her. Right. And I think she's gonna. She's of interest to people doing women's studies. She's of interest to journalists and the whole question of journalistic ethics and. You know, there's a lot of things about her that we need to know more about. Yeah. It's actually astounding how many Canadians were in the Soviet Union in 1932-33. Journalists, delegation members, uh, people who'd gone to work there, engineers who'd been working there who came out. uh, And all of this stuff is sprinkled through the press. I mean, there's all these references. There's there's lots of stuff. Canada knew what was going on. People, they knew what was going on in the Soviet Union. There was disinformation and... It's a very relevant topic right now because, of course, uh, Russian disinformation is extremely active. Yeah. And in some ways, it's very similar to the stuff they did back then. It's uh, They use social media now, different platforms and everything, but the basic principles are the same, that you spread confusing stories. And you see the you see the impact of this when you get letters to the editor yeah. uh, that come in and said, you know, these people go to the Soviet Union and they say it's terrible. These other people go and say it's great. We don't know what to believe. Yeah. And then the propaganda has worked because right. they muddied the water enough that people say, well, you know. Yeah. Um, and I should tell you, just being being in a BC show, that uh, we've also looked at the Vancouver Sun in the Vancouver province. And there's very interesting stuff there on the famine and uh, uh, lots of uh, coverage. I mean, uh, uh, I said the Canadian story of the famine is huge. And Ria's is one part of it. They did make a, a documentary called Hunger for Truth, the Rhea Kleiman story. Hmm. It was done by Andrew Tkach. And what Andrew did was he took her story as a kind of thread that he ran through, but then he included all kinds of other stuff about the famine, and he goes to 19... Uh, she, she was kicked out. This is what she described as the early stages of the famine. Mm-hmm. The whole of the Mar, and some scholars argue that what we call the whole of the Mar should be restricted to 1933, when people were dying already in 1932, if there was famine. But the actual mass murder, very conscious, deliberate murder, where they sealed off areas and sent people in and took all the food out, knowing that people would starve to death, that really were 80% of the people who died in the famine in those months between January and June of 1933. But she she got kicked out on September 20th of 1932. Mm. And so she describes the early stages of the famine. The famine mm. conditions already existed. And mm. she also wrote an interesting article that was published in the Daily Express, where she talked about how things have changed, that it's no, that whereas, at least in theory, in the early days, the Soviets were based on workers and things like that, but that increasingly the state now rested on the old Tsarist military class and the bureaucracy. Right. These guys who were notoriously Ukrainophobic and reactionary, what the Bolsheviks did was they kind of lopped off the top layer of it, but the bulk of it remained intact, and then they turned to them to basically run this new super totalitarian state that the Bolsheviks created. I mean, she she was like a fish in water. I mean, she didn't have the perspective that we have, and she didn't have the knowledge of Ukrainian history or any of that stuff. She mm-hmm. just wrote what she saw. But it's amazing what the insights that she brings to it. So the film that was made um, only captures um, a little bit of her reporting. Yes. Uh, there's enough, there's more than enough to do a, a real full-length documentary devoted entirely to her, period. And are you going to be working uh, on that? Uh, no. <laughs> I'm trying to get a book together, a biography of her, which is coming in bits and pieces because i got so many obligations that it's hard to find concentrated time to work on it. But I keep finding additional uh, bits of uh, information. And uh, so, I mean, I've got enough now that I'm writing all the time. But that's my first goal. And then there are other possibilities. I've already had a number of people say, like, wow, this should be a movie. And I say, what is a documentary? No, 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 like a Hollywood movie. Yeah. I said, well, we'll see one thing at a time. And 
Wow. But it's a, it's a great story. She's such an interesting character. Yeah. And there's an interest in the Jewish community in her story. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I reached out to the Toronto Jewish Genealogical Society, giving a little bit of, of the story of her. Within a day, I got an email back from this woman saying, this is incredible. We've never heard of her. What an amazing thing. And I've spoken at three different Jewish, there's this organization called Limud. Yes. You know, it's like their prosvita. So, and I've spoken in Collingwood, Ontario, in Westchester, New York, in Oakland, California. I've spoken in, in Odessa at the, at the thing. I've spoken at the Kiev um, Polytechnic about her. I've, uh, I visited the Yipokotros, the Jewish Cultural Center, the Historical Society. I've spoken in Ukrainian and in English and in whatever. I've done lots of talks about her in uh, Fresno, California, Paris. But she's a character. She's, I says, I'm, I'm enchanted with her, and I'm just lucky that I have an understanding wife who doesn't <laughs> mind me spending all this time with Rhea traveling around the world telling her story. I said, it's, just, it's taken on a life of its own, and it's yeah. great, but I have so many other things that are so far behind so many other things. The story is The story has such great legs, and I just keep chipping away at it. Yeah, well, keep at it. Uh, thank you for doing it and for sharing it, and uh, look forward to hearing more about Rhea Kleiman. Okay. Talk to you later. Okay. Thanks so much, Yaris. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Pauline. I've been speaking with Yaris Balan from the University of Alberta, where he is director of the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies and coordinator of the Cool Ukrainian Canadian Studies Centre. I hope you found the story of Rhea Kleiman informative and as intriguing and inspiring as we do. Transcripts and audio files of both parts of this interview can be found on our website, as well as at the website of the sponsor of this series, the Ukrainian Jewish Encounter. I'm Pavlina, producer and host of Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio. Until next time, Shalom. Ukrainian Jewish Heritage is brought to you by the Ukrainian Jewish Encounter, based in Toronto, Ontario. To find out more about their work, visit their website and follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Transcripts and audio files of this and earlier broadcasts of Ukrainian Jewish Heritage are available at their website, ukrainianjewishencounter.org, as well as at the Nasholos website, www.nasholos.com.
Богуя, я козак весілля. Придуки на ліво, придуки на право, гуляє козак весілля. Придуки на ліво, придуки на право, гуляє козак весілля. Придуки на ліво, придуки на право, гуляє козак весілля. And a couple of wedding songs for you there. That was the Euphoria Band from their CD they just released this past summer. And that was called Hirkaya Voda, which translates as uh, bitter water. doesn't really translate well. And uh, that was a wedding medley. And before that was Kozak's Wedding, performed by Tuti Tam from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. You've been listening to Nasholos Ukrainian Roots Radio, our flagship show in Vancouver, which comes to you Saturdays from 6 to 7 p.m. here on AM 1320 CHMB on the radio dial and online at am1320.com and in international syndication on PCJ Radio International. In between broadcasts, please visit us online at www.nasholos.com where you'll find the archived audio files, transcripts, and podcast feed for Nasholos features like Ukrainian Jewish Heritage, Kanishka Corner Book Review, guest interviews, and of course the show. And please check out our Patreon page and consider supporting the podcast there. And our proverb of the week translates as a stranger can give us as good advice as a best friend. And with that, we've come to the end of our program. So to wrap things up, we have the Ukrainian old-timers from Winnipeg, Manitoba, and the Roosters Polka. I'm Pavlina. On behalf of all of us here at Nosh Holos and AM 1320, thanks for listening and Dobranich!
Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Thank you.